Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today we're broadcasting from the studios of the University of Technology Sydney, or UTS. We've travelled to Sydney with support from Xinhuarezi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly on Chinese labour, civil society and rights. This month marks the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to Chinese sovereignty, and it's being marked in style. The Hong Kong government is spending $100 million on celebrations, and more still receiving Chinese leaders for these celebrations, and all the security that comes with that. Meanwhile, activists have threatened to kick off a new round of civil disobedience on July the 1st, traditionally a day of protest in Hong Kong. Officially, it has the catchy title of Hong Kong Special Administrative Region Establishment Day. the sound of the umbrella movement, a 79-day occupation of some of Hong Kong's main streets. And this was its signature chant, simply Hong Kong people. Today, we'll be talking about how that became a rallying cry, and we'll be talking about Hong Kong's localist movement. Our guest today is Kevin Carrico from Macquarie University, who's been studying Hong Kong's newly emerged localist movement and is writing a short book on the topic. Welcome, Kevin, to the show. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. So these localists uh, managed to do quite well in the recent elections. And uh, how much of a problem are they for the Hong Kong government? No matter how you look at it, this is an emerging trend uh, that the Hong Kong and the Beijing governments are going to have to deal with in coming years. We've seen, I believe, uh, a real paradigm shift when uh, you talk about the idea of localism, the idea of uh, Hong Kong independence. Arguably, there may have been uh, sentiments like this in the uh, past, but uh, particularly from 2011, with the uh, emergence of uh, Wan Chin's book, Hong Kong as a City-State, and then even more uh, from 2015 in the aftermath of the uh, Occupy movement, you've seen a real uh, massive change in Hong Kong society and political culture where a concept that was perhaps present but really only very marginal, uh, very uh, limited, has managed to enter mainstream political and cultural discussions in a uh, really unprecedented way. I think this is a very real issue that both the Hong Kong and the Beijing governments are going to have to deal with. But I also have a feeling that the way that they're going to deal with it is probably only going to uh, add fuel to the fire. The uh, responses that uh, have developed so far seem to suggest that uh, both the local government and the Beijing government want to take uh, really just a hardline approach to this emerging cultural political trend. And that, uh, I fear, is going to only provoke increasingly hardline responses uh, from the people involved in this movement. 
these localists um, came to prominence after the umbrella movement, mm-hmm. but their roots go back much further than that, don't they? So if you go back to 2007, you had a <laughs> movement to preserve the Star Ferry in Queen's Pier mm-hmm. and followed by the anti-high-speed rail campaign. Mm. Um, how important were these preservation movements in the development of localism in Hong Kong? Certainly the uh, Star Ferry preservation protests uh, played an important role. Later on, a few years later, the uh, rise of the anti-national education uh, protests uh, played a central role in terms of raising people's consciousness. Um, And if we go uh, even further back, um, although I'm sort of jumping through dates historically, the Article 23 protests that uh, emerged in 2003, I think these were all sort of important steps in realizing or vocalizing a very real sense of difference uh, from the way that political and cultural issues are handled in uh, the People's Republic. Article 23, of course, being the legislation against sedition and subversion that the government wanted to introduce at the time. Yes. National security legislation, uh, anti-sedition, anti-treason legislation uh, needed to be passed uh, under the uh, basic law. And, uh, you know, a national security law certainly sounds uh, reasonable enough, but when we take into consideration the ways in which the idea of national security, state security, sedition uh, is used uh, in the People's Republic, uh, it's also very reasonable that people in Hong Kong felt uh, quite concerned about the introduction of any type of law that would give really broad, vague powers for dealing with, you know, so-called sedition or treason. And as a result, on, I believe, July 1st of 2003, you had uh, a really massive turnout for protests on just the sixth anniversary of uh, Hong Kong's integration into the PRC. That was a very important uh, moment kind of in this transformation. Uh, Prior to that, there was this idea that I think uh, people outside of China as well as uh, leaders in China had that uh, the people of Hong Kong were you know, solely economically minded, very practical, uh, wouldn't want to get involved in politics. But I think that those kinds of perceptions uh, led uh, the government to perhaps push a little too hard uh, in terms of these sorts of uh, national security policies, which I think really led to the start uh, of politicization. It's interesting that you talk about jumping back in history. I'm, I'm going to jump even further back to suggest that perhaps China didn't, didn't quite really what it was buying into when mm-hmm. it brought uh, Hong Kong back. Because mm-hmm. if you look at Hong Kong's history, it's no Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1967, you have riots where 55 people were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing like that ever happened in Singapore, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And if you look to the 1970s, you have a, a, a very strong protest movement, mm-hmm. often around very practical everyday things, such as bus fares mm-hmm. uh, and public housing policy. Mm-hmm. But the Brits didn't have an easy time of it uh, mm-hmm. in their rule of Hong Kong by, by any means. Mm-hmm. So Indeed. do you think possibly uh, the Chinese leadership didn't understand Uh, what Hong Kong was about? I would certainly agree with that. And I I would also tend to say I I think they still don't understand (laughs) what Hong Kong is all about. Um, The fact of the matter is that when Hong Kong was integrated uh, into the PRC in 1997, you were 
integrating a society uh, with the you know freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, relatively developed rule of law, um, relatively clean governance into a political body in which none of those uh, rights or uh, developments were yet realized. In Steinringen's uh, new book, The Perfect Dictatorship, he refers to the Chinese party state as a controlocracy, sort of obsessed with exercising control over whatever uh, it deems necessary. And we didn't necessarily see that type of controlocracy in Hong Kong in the first, uh, you know, six years of its integration into China. But we saw the gradual introduction of that uh, with the attempt at Article 23 in 2003 and uh, following up on that with the attempt to introduce uh, national education into schools in Hong Kong in the aftermath of uh, Article 23. But the, the problem with this type of controlocracy and the problem with this emphasis upon stability above all else is that in a certain sense, uh, you know, the more you try to control things, this produces uh, blowback and complications where things sort of spin out of control, as we can see in Hong Kong today. And uh, in emphasizing stability above all else and uh, attempting to sort of externalize problems, uh, labeling all sorts of social tensions as just the product of, you know, Hong Kong independence forces or interfering outside forces, it doesn't address the root causes of the problem and that emphasis upon stability then ironically becomes destabilizing. So you probably remember the Locust song, which was a remake of a popular song by Ethan Chan, which was basically talking about Hong Kong being overrun by mainlanders. And there was a lot of talk about that their lack of hygiene of children pooping on the subway and in streets, people eating on the subway, things like that. <laughs> I mean, so to what extent is the sort of the localism driven by political uh, concerns and to what extent is it driven by this kind of cultural differences or the sort of a feeling of trying to divorce from mainlanders as opposed mm -hmm. to the system? I, I think it's really difficult in reality to sort of draw a clear line between the two, right? Because the way that I tend to view uh, or tend to understand the Chinese state is that uh, to a certain degree it uh, attempts to sort of culturalize or naturalize its politics, right? To sort of uh, present uh, the current political system as sort of the the natural outcome of 5,000 years of Chinese history. And so back in 2009, I visited the National Education Center uh, that had been set up, I believe, in 2007 in uh, Dapu or Taipo. And um, it was uh, really interesting, basically, how this national education program attempted to introduce uh, sort of China uh, to the people of Hong Kong. You had this uh, very confusing mix, I think, of uh, sort of culture 
and politics in, uh, you know, the first floor sort of uh, almost museum-like display in the National Education Center. You know, there were images of mythical figures, so the uh, Yellow Emperor, uh, Emperor Yen, uh, etc., placed alongside uh, images of, you know, Hu Jintao and uh, these uh, explanations of the national anthem. Going on, there would be these uh, classrooms uh, that students would go into to uh, learn uh, supposedly various aspects of a Chinese culture. One room was a uh, traditional medicine room. But interestingly, in this room, you would also have these signs uh, about, uh, you know, evil cults uh, and the need to sort of stay away from them. There was a, uh, a room that introduced minority cultures. But then alongside these minority cultures, there'd, of course, be discussions of opposing splitism. So I think that uh, the way I view the China model is that there's never really a, a clear distinction between, at least within official constructions, between what is political and what is cultural. And I think that uh, the localist movement is sort of a reaction uh, to that uh, insofar as if being culturally Chinese uh, necessarily means that you uh, accept the current uh, political model uh, in Beijing, uh, accept the way that issues are currently being handled in Hong Kong, then um, there's a, a growing sense of uh, separation, of alienation from that. Quickly to follow up on that, that National Education Center, was it ever put into use? Yes, yes. It was used, uh, I believe, from 2007 till 2012 or early 2013. Did you get any interesting reactions from local Hong Kong people? This was a center designed for training school kids um, somewhere between, you know, 5 and 12 to learn about patriotism. I think it was, I mean, I don't know how the policy developed, but I do know that it came in the immediate aftermath of the Article 23 controversy. And so I see it as almost uh, very much modeled on the patriotic education movement that uh, emerged in the aftermath of 1989. You have large-scale protests, and then afterwards you have sort of an educational program attempting to uh, avoid those types of protests again in the future. Uh, ironically, national education turned into sort of a mobilizing force for uh, anti-Beijing and uh, eventually sort of localist uh, political movements. One thing that stands out the most to me was this uh, sort of final section of the National Education Center display, which uh, it was an imitation spaceship, okay? Uh, sort of like an imitation rocket. And uh, children would sort of walk through that and then after uh, passing through that, everyone would sit down and have a uh, little uh, piece of paper that they were supposed to fill out uh, saying something along the lines of the way that I will contribute uh, to the development of the motherland is, and then you would uh, fill it out. I sort of interpret that as kind of a a rebirth moment, uh, you know, this idea that one uh, sort of passes through this uh, passageway and then is reborn as a uh, newly dedicated to uh, the development uh, of the motherland. Or at least we can look forward to a lot of astronauts born in mm. Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah uh, people's responses were often 
you know, quite fantastic. The ones that I saw written down, you know, oh, well, I want to be a, an Olympic athlete or I want to be a astronaut. Uh, you know, nobody said I want to be a, you know, bureaucrat. National education, I think, was very much designed to naturalize the Hong Kong model and uh, the China model uh, in the uh, minds of uh, Hong Kong's youth. But uh, ironically, it became a real rallying point uh, for protests in uh, 2012, which uh, then, you know, some of the people who led that protest uh, later uh, became involved in uh, the protests in 2014. Is there any possibility that there could be a unifying figure emerging in the localist movement? For example, Horace Chin Wan, um, formerly an academic at uh, Lingnan University, and uh, last year he found his position wasn't renewed mm -hmm. after the university president wrote him a letter informing him that, quote, your words and behaviour over the past few years contradicted your status as a scholar and went beyond the bottom line of the limit of speech freedom. These words can be found uh, after he published an influential book suggesting that Hong Kong should become a city-state. Uh, is Chin Wan possibly a unifying figure for the localist movement or is it already splintered into too many factions? Well, I would say that uh, Chin Wan certainly... His uh, book on Hong Kong as a city-state really drove the founding uh, and the initial growth of this movement. Um, I think he really broke important uh, taboos, um, said things that uh, I believe not many other people had said publicly, uh, even if they may have thought it uh, privately. And his book, uh, Hong Kong as a City-State, you know, which I have here, it's uh, innovative, fascinating, fun to read, and uh, I think really had a uh, deep effect on culture. Uh, we wouldn't see any of this happening uh, without his book and uh, his work. But as for him being a unifying figure, I, I don't really see that happening. But I do see a tendency uh, among him and among uh, other people involved um, in this movement to, um, particularly over the past nine months or so, become involved in very heated debates, um, debating and disagreeing uh, very strongly with one another. And almost being as hard on each other uh, as they are on uh, people that they think of as, uh, you know, their stated opponents, you know, such as the Hong Kong government uh, or the Beijing government. What about these younger groups that really emerged after the Umbrella Movement? How do we understand what they're actually after? I think of them all as um, fairly localist, one might say almost more extreme kind of versions of uh, some of the groups that contributed to uh, Occupy, insofar as I see them as kind of growing out of some of the, I don't know whether it's hope in the aftermath of the Occupy movement, uh, you know, hope that uh, people came together and were able to change things, or despair, uh, you know, the sense that uh, everybody came together and really not much changed uh, things, arguably. 
uh, became worse. But I can say civic passion, uh, I believe, was established in uh, 2012 and played a really important role, I think, in popularizing this type of thought uh, after Wan Chin's book, insofar as it runs the Passion Times uh, newspaper and website that, as a media institution, sort of views Hong Kong affairs through what could be vaguely called a localist or Hong Kong nationalist uh, perspective. And I know that Civic Passion played an important role, I believe, in uh, some of the original locust discussions that we just mentioned a little while back. Uh, They also played an important role along with the Hong Kong indigenous in the uh, anti-parallel trader protests that happened in 2015 uh, in places like Shengshui, Yuanlong, and Sha Tin, where uh, these were areas that were sort of being, I don't like to use the term overrun, but certainly uh, becoming increasingly crowded, right, um, by people who were purchasing goods from Hong Kong, uh, milk powder, um, diapers, uh, other sort of medicinal and food products, and uh, importing them back into China at a profit. And these two groups, uh, as I understand, play an important role in organizing protests where, uh, unfortunately, there were various uh, confrontations between local residents and um, visiting traders or uh, tourists that really highlighted uh, these emerging tensions that arose as a result of Hong Kong almost being a sort of safety valve right, for uh, increasingly pressing issues in China. An issue that these protests really highlighted was that, uh, you know, Hong Kong's a city of, uh, what, six million, seven million people. It already feels a bit crowded. Uh, (laughs) So um, to then, in turn, serve as a sort of safety valve for these types of uh, social issues in a country of uh, 1.3 billion people is, uh, I think, arguably a bit impractical and not sustainable. We have all of these groups that have emerged um, with a varying range of beliefs and demands ranging from a referendum Mm -hmm. for autonomy to complete independence. Uh, And they have won some traction, they have Mm -hmm. won votes, but do you think that they will continue to be allowed to play a part in the political process in Hong Kong? From what we're seeing at the moment, I have my doubts. Um, I think that what we're sort of seeing developing is that I think Beijing's hardline policy has produced sort of very unexpected uh, developments in culture and politics. Um, If we're going back uh, 20 years ago, I don't think that anybody in 1997 would have said like, oh, in 2017, we'll be talking about, you know, the founding of the Hong Kong National Party and uh, the growth of a uh, Hong Kong independence movement. Um, This is quite unexpected. There has been this, uh, I believe, uh, increasingly uh, sort of hardline policy from Beijing, delaying political reform, uh, giving uh, very little on political reform when it was eventually uh, offered in 2014. This has produced, I think, increasingly sort of hardline 
responses and methods from people who are outraged by this in Hong Kong society, what these, uh, you know, responses have then produced is sort of an increasingly hardline response from Beijing, where we can see growing pressure to supposedly make discussion of Hong Kong independence illegal. Uh, this is an idea that was floated in the uh, most recent issue of the, I think, quite official journal, uh, Hong Kong and Macau Studies, put out by the National Hong Kong Macau uh, Studies Association. There was a, a proposal to uh, enact legislation or sort of reinterpret Article 27 of the basic law about uh, freedom of speech to make Hong Kong independence as an idea no longer uh, permissible within speech. And if that happens, uh, I think that we've uh, really taken a new step down a very, very uh, dangerous road because the question then is, where do you differentiate what is speech in support of Hong Kong independence or not, right? Um, uh, there was a a film last year, uh, 10 years, that told this uh, fictional story of a uh, person who ran a small store and was selling uh, local eggs and was uh, harassed uh, as a result of uh, his use of the word local uh, to describe the eggs uh, because they were eggs laid in Hong Kong. If this uh, actually uh, you know, becomes policy, which unfortunately this journal seems to be sort of a... Uh, place where kind of bad policy ideas are floated <laughs> from Beijing, if this uh, becomes a reality, you know, unfortunately, it seems like this uh, ridiculous story from 10 years uh, could even perhaps come to be a reality. But aren't we already at that place? I mean, teachers in schools have already been told that they're not allowed to <laughs> discuss or mention independence in the classroom, which is basically something which is un enforceable when you introduce rules that cannot be enforced. Do you see a situation where Hong Kong starts to become ungovernable? Mm, indeed. Uh, by the time I arrived in 2017, in the aftermath of the uh, oath-taking controversy, uh, in the aftermath of the disqualification of uh, the Hong Kong National Party, people from participating in the elections, there is clearly growing pressure on this movement. And, you know, there are still people who are willing to talk, but from my impression, there are people who uh, I think are increasingly anxious about the direction in which politics is moving. And uh, even uh, Chin Wan recently on Facebook, uh, you know, has been talking about the idea of um, establishing Hong Kong elsewhere. People who came to Hong Kong were originally, uh, you know, fleeing uh, war or revolution uh, to the north. There was, a, you know, an exodus of people in the 80s and 90s. Um, and now I do see more and more talk uh, from people either about, uh, you know, the risk of serving jail time on uh, political charges or just giving up and leaving. That's an unfortunate and uh, unexpected turn uh, 20 years into Hong Kong's integration into China. So you mentioned a journal where, if I can paraphrase you, where uh, bad ideas come to life. <laughs> um, 
But it really surprises me that people in mainland China haven't learnt from Xinjiang, haven't learnt from Tibet. And basically once you pull the word separatist out of the bottle, uh, it's very hard to put it back in because you've defined things in black and white, friend and enemy terms. And, and really there is no going back from there. Do some people on the mainland side realise how dangerous this is? I do know that at a recent conference, uh, I believe... That was uh, part of the uh, National Hong Kong and Macau Studies uh, Association. There was one scholar who pointed out, and perhaps pointed this out a bit too late, that uh, Hong Kong simply, you know, can't be ruled uh, in the same way that the PRC can be ruled. And that was a uh, sort of breath of refreshing air in uh, sort of Hong Kong studies uh, in China. But other than that, most of what I'm seeing suggests that, uh, you know, Hong Kong independence is going to be uh, a target of official struggle, just like Tibetan independence, Xinjiang independence. And that uh, does not bode well for the future. I know a lot of people are very uncomfortable uh, with uh, comparing Tibet and Hong Kong. And I completely understand uh, that discomfort because at the end of the day, you know, the rights uh, that people in Hong Kong currently enjoy, people in Tibet or Xinjiang would be, uh, you know, overjoyed to have those types of rights. On the other hand, uh, if we look at, you know, the history of Tibet, we can see in a way, uh, I hope I don't sound too extreme or too uh, ridiculous here. Uh, if you look at the 17-point agreement signed between uh, China and Tibet, uh, there was this, uh, you know, guarantee that people's ways of life would be preserved, uh, there'd be freedom of religion, things would not change. Obviously, that didn't come to be the case. Forty-some years later, we see uh, the handover of Hong Kong to China with similar guarantees and I think a much more gradual process of uh, integrating an increasingly hardline policy but I am concerned uh, that that type of hardline policy is taking effect. I mean, finally, earlier you spoke about how hardline responses are leading to these radical actions which are leading to more hardline responses, so a whole kind of spiral of repression. Mm -hmm. How do you see this playing out? Will we see another round of large-scale civil disobedience followed by more repression? Or is there any way out of this apart from that? I don't honestly see any way out of this, uh, you know, relating to the question about whether uh, the government would learn from the examples of Xinjiang or Tibet. Um, there's a uh, continual process of uh, externalization, projection, the idea that uh, any problems that happen uh, in these areas, whether we're talking about Xinjiang, Tibet, or Hong Kong, it's always supposedly, you know, uh, planned and uh, controlled by these external forces who are trying to destabilize China, right? And this is how uh, they uh, describe the Occupy protests in 2014. This is how they characterize Hong Kong uh, independence. And this is uh, a fundamental misreading uh, of what's actually happening. You know, these tensions, these uh, cultural trends 
are really growing out of very real and I think very reasonable dissatisfaction with the policy coming from Beijing and coming from the local government. But uh, that dissatisfaction is misrecognized as some type of, uh, you know, intervention by the CIA or something along those lines. Uh, you know, the use of sort of conspiracy theory to explain away uh, very real problems. So then uh, the result is that there's this urge to crack down, urge to, uh, you know, arrest people and say this is taboo and you can't do this. And that only creates, uh, you know, ever greater tension in society. So as I said earlier, just as, uh, you know, stability is destabilizing, uh, these interpretations of the basic law are really, I think, using the law to undermine the actual practice of the law, these problems are developing in a sort of vicious cycle that started perhaps in 2003 from Article 23, shifted in 2011 with uh, the publication of Hong Kong as a city-state, shifted again in 2014 with Occupy and the various uh, sort of localist or independence factions that have emerged out of that. And it's very difficult to say where this will go next but uh, unfortunately, I have to say I don't see any solution or any uh, happy outcome. Kevin, thanks for coming. Thank you. Many thanks to our guest, Kevin Carrico, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Kevin's recent research. This episode was recorded at the University of Technology, Sydney, and edited in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from the good people at Shinwarazi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Donta. Bye for now.